what if I told you two men decided to go on a journey? A journey of epic proportions. Ones of tragedy and triumph. This is the podcast of Noah Ganotech and Sam Kanan and their journey to watch 30, 30 for 30s in 30 days. We ask you to kindly sit back and enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to first of all thank you for deciding to turn on uh, Noah and I's podcast uh, today. We are very proud to have been going on this journey for the past three days. Um, we've watched three great 30 for 30s. And Noah, would you like to kind of talk about how we've got to this point where all this idea and our decision to go on this long and, you know, tumultuous journey um, decided? Well, when did we start doing it? Well, we tried to do a freshman year, uh, not the podcast part, but just the watching 30 for 30, 30, 30 for 30s and 30 days in December. Uh, and then we would just kind of talk about it amongst ourselves, but without that uh, commitment to do a podcast, and with other things getting in the way, uh, we kind of stopped after like a week. We did watch some good ones in that time, but we were watching the Bob Knight documentary uh, together. And the Last Days of Night is the uh, technique. It's a it's a good flick, no just doubt. Came out, just came out on Thursday, and uh, you brought up the idea of how we tried to do it freshman year, and I said maybe we should try to do it again sometime. Although they took all the uh, Thirty for Thirties off Netflix, which we used to watch because remember yeah. we used to have like all of them. Right. And then literally, no joke, like a minute later, a commercial popped up for ESPN Plus that said all of the 30 for 30s are archived on this, uh, whatever it is, like their app. Yeah, the ESPN Plus. Yeah. And we're like, well, now we have to do it. Yeah. I, I mean, after we watched that, we were kind of dead set on it. I mean, Noah and I were up. And we're going to explain the process, too, of how we've, you know, gotten the 30 that we picked. Actually, we have a little bit more than 30. We have a couple um, duos like uh, the U part one and part two, as well as the Celtics, as well as the Celtics um, documentary, all three parts of that as well. I wanted to do all five parts of the uh, OJ Made in America 30 for 30, but Sam, Sam nixed that idea. Yeah. But um, so we decided after, you know, thinking about it and, you know, are we really going to do this and, you know, put our, you know, livelihood, our relationships, you know, our, you know, vices that we do all the time. Uh, in Jeopardy, just to watch uh, 30 related, sport related uh, documentaries that are extremely well done by ESPN. Um, so we decided that we were gonna we were gonna stay up until one o'clock, and we were gonna have a draft. Um, so I, of course, won the you know coin toss, and uh, I picked uh, Fantastic Lies, um, the story of the Duke Lacrosse team in 2006, uh, and their infamous party where you know. It literally felt like the world was falling from the sky. Um, Noah then decided to pick uh, Youngstown Boys, the story of Maurice Claret. And Jim Trussell. And Jim Trussell for the most part. Um, Maurice Claret. Maurice Claret. And the last part was we decided, or I decided that we should watch The Four Falls of Buffalo based off of the Buffalo Bills' four-year Super Bowl losing streak in the early 1990s. Um, Noah really connected that one because his team stinks. But um, – we decided to do those three to start it off, um, and that's what our first podcast is going to be about. 
Um, we're going to release a podcast probably. We're, the goal is twice every week, and um, we really got our sights set. We're really excited about this. Um, we cranked two out yesterday um, just so we could have time to really think about and digest the three great films that we watched. Um, and uh, we're really excited to get things going. We we're really excited to get things going, no doubt. And um, we got some we got a great show for you guys today. Um, we will also be releasing the next four ones that we will watch, so you guys can watch with us um, if you guys are up to that. But thanks for coming again. We're really appreciative of it, and uh, let's just get right into it. Okay, so as mentioned earlier, I decided to pick. Um, for the first documentary Noah and I watch, I decided to pick Fantastic Lies, um, of course, which is the infamous story of the 2006 Duke men's lacrosse team. Um, to go into a little detail real quick, um, the Duke men's lacrosse team was on spring break. Well, not really on spring break. They were in season, and they decided that they should hire two strippers for a party between all of them. They were all there. Um, one of those strippers happened to be a girl from um, NC Central called Crystal Magnum. Um, she was stripping there and that's when things kind of go, you know, haywire. Um, she decided that she was going to say that three of the Duke lacrosse players, um, sexually assaulted her and, um, caused her, you know, severe physical damage. Um, while Duke's men lacrosse team, all of them denied, denied, denied the entire time. Um, it ultimately got their coach, Mike Pressler fired. Um, it was national news every single day. That was a huge part of how the media kind of took over, kind of created a firestorm with the whole thing, as well as it had huge implications on the um, North Carolina and Durham, the city of Durham's uh, attorney general, um, or sorry, district attorney Mike Nifong's uh, election and his, you know, calling out of the Duke lacrosse players and siding with Crystal Magnum. And then ultimately putting all these kids through hell for, you know, almost an entire year and ended up being, you know, that, you know, Mag well, Crystal I mean, Magnum had completely made up the entire thing. Well, and Nifong was trying to defend her. And even more so for Nifong's sake, he ended up getting disbarred and actually had to serve a one day jail sentence for his mishandling and lying of the Duke lacrosse case. Yeah. Um, one thing about uh, Mike Nafong that really bothered me was he has a gigantic pimple in the middle of his head, and I really couldn't get out, you know, that out of my mind. Um, he's a rat. He's a rat, but I think we'll get back to him in a little later. No, I really feel like this was kind of before our time. It was. Like, I, I think I remember when Dave Evans came and addressed the media and gave his fantastic live speech. I think I saw it on SportsCenter. I don't vividly remember it. But, I mean, we were – how old were we? I was nine. Uh, I was eight, maybe. Yeah. So, I mean, we really weren't involved. We – you know, this is looking back on it, which is a lot of these um, 30 for 30s are, you know, kind of looking back before our time. And, Noah, so I really thought the entire time that this was kind of like the perfect storm. Mm -hmm. I think there were a lot of – I think there were a lot of socioeconomic factors – that really played into this story becoming national headline news for, you know, what almost felt like an entire year. It was, I believe they said in the documentary, 322 days from the initial party to the real, the really the revolution resolution of it. When uh, there was that court scene with the DNA expert that Mike Nifong 
hired and basically admitted on a stand under oath that he had entered into an agreement with Mike Nifong not to report any uh, like uh, freeing evidence of the Duke lacrosse players, evidence that would basically say the Duke, innocent, uh, Duke lacrosse players were innocent, uh, and he decided not to report that as per his agreement with Mike Nifong. It was 322 days, I believe, from the initial party to that date when the Duke lacrosse players were justifiably proven innocent. Yeah, and I think... Of rape, of the rape that they were accused of. Right, and I really think that, you know, watching this documentary, because I've seen it so many times, I really feel more and more for the lacrosse players, not only them, but their families. I mean, to go and, you know, have your son being, you know, prosecuted as a sexual, you know, as for sexual assault, I, I mean, that would only affect me so, so, so much. Yeah, in the eyes of the nation. Right. And I'm not going to defend their party, bring the strippers of the party. When you do something like that, you set yourselves up for negative consequences that you probably could have avoided. That's not what we're defending here. I think it's important to make that point very yeah, clear. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, but we're defending the fact that they were treated uh, so much more differently than any other college kids, group of college kids that – might have had this problem arisen from a bad party that they threw. Right. And I mean, going back to my idea that this was like the perfect storm, it really was like, as you watch this 30 for 30, and I think Noah agrees with me on this, you just see that everything kind of just like fell into place. Like there were so many things that were so many variables and everything just kind of clicked the entire way. I mean, we have these, you know, wealthy you know, white, um, rich kids from Duke, you know, Duke lacrosse players. And then they're taking so-called taking advantage of this, this poor African-American NC central woman who, you know, who is a stripper and the media completely jumped on it. It was incredible to see the absolute quick to jump to a conclusion of that these kids were innocent just because of who they were and who the person that was sexually assaulted was. Yeah, they created this, uh, the media created this narrative that obviously these kids would be able to take advantage of her because they've been, they've had so many advantages in their life. There's never been anything they don't get. Um, so it's an easy narrative for the media to create. And especially at the College of Duke, uh, I remember one of the attorneys for one of the, Young men accused said that he had a friend in North Carolina law that said, I was, grew up in the South my whole life, except for the four years I went to Duke. Right. So you kind of you put this situation in this place that's considered a bubble away from the rest of the community of the city of Durham. And it's not hard to see how the media takes this and runs with it. Um, and I think there's a lot of interesting things to discuss just uh, before we get to the media, too. Because uh, one of the things I found a little bit annoying about the documentary was you have all these journalists that help create the problems. And then at the end when, you know, because it kind of, the movie does a narrative from the very beginning. It uh, shows Duke losing the national championship a year prior to the allegations that uh, in the uh, party. And then it follows it through in chronological order to the resolution of them being proven guilty and the charges being dropped. So there's really sometimes documentaries it starts at the end, goes to the beginning, ends where it started. But this one was a true 
chronological story, which I actually think helped and aided making this movie yeah, so much. Yeah, I think I think it did too because I really think they really so they made a point. At the first thing that comes on the screen is uh, Duke losing to Johns Hopkins um, in the national championship beforehand. Um, so that kind of like brings it like these guys were, you know, supposed to be the up and comers, the next national champions, all these young guys who are, you know, studs. And and then the party happens and then the season goes down the drain, the allegations and everything. And it's just a snowball effect the entire time. And I really think Noah has a really good point. I like the way the director and her name escapes me. What is her name? Marina Zenovich. Marina Zenovich. She really chronicles this entire 322 days so, so well, I really felt like. Every single, you know, turn and twist was really well documented, and we saw that throughout, you know, the entire documentary. I would agree with that. And let's get into some of the uh, heavier details. I'd like to start – I have a list of people I think we should just kind of talk about. Okay. Discuss their role. I want to start with the coach, Mike Pressler. I found him to be a very interesting character in this. Um, they they does – they have him available for interviews. They don't really talk to him a lot, I found. I actually think his perspective would have been pretty interesting to hear from because uh, he got fired uh, pretty early on into the scandal or asked to resign, but quote-unquote fired. And so he would have been able to view this as sort of a – kind of like an outsider. Obviously, he knows the players well, but uh, – You know, I think Mike, Mike Pressler was the guy who – I mean, I feel for the guy. Yeah. Like I, he lost his job at you know a top top five lacrosse school for a party that he didn't had no control him. over. Had no control. Probably didn't even know what was happening. He literally just stuck with his guys the entire time. Well, and even if he did stick with them and you know said I'm gonna wash my hands of it, I'm gonna let the investigation play out, he still would have probably been fired because he's seen as a leader. And the thing I found interesting is uh, Duke forces him to resign. In the end, uh, the thing he resigned for was basically proven to be untrue, unfounded, and they don't bring him back. Like I, I kind of wanted to know: was he offered the job again? Did he have not like did he want nothing to do with Duke after this? Because it seems kind of. I think. Well, did you? And, and after doing a little deep research, you know, digging well, a lot deeper. Yeah, he works at Bryant now. Yeah, uh, and and there. and the three kids accused him of returning to Duke either. They didn't. They didn't. I didn't know that. They did not return to Duke afterwards either. They didn't cover that in the documentary. They did not. Um, and I, I feel for Mike Pressler because, you know, being, I, you know, coaching the, the little amount I have, you have ties to these kids. You really, like, you know, you see them, you put your work into them, you treat them. And I, and I can't talk for Mike Pressler, but I really feel like he had a unique relationship, like a father-to-son relationship with these kids and he didn't want to see them, you know, be put in the personal spotlight that everybody was throwing them under. They threw them under the bus. So Mike Russell said, you know what, I'm going to go with them. I'm going to jump in because I believe that's what right. That's what's right. And that these things that happened, you know, didn't really happen. They were all just, you know, smoke and mirrors. Correct. Correct. And uh, you did see his dedication to the kids. He showed up to a lot of their court dates. Yeah. They show him walking in that infamous court scene. Uh, with the DNA expert that Mike Neifong had uh, entered into an agreement with. So even while the scandal was ongoing, even though he wasn't their coach, he still stuck by him. Yeah. Uh, I did do some further research and found out that him and I believe uh, – well, this was covered with, in the documentary. 
uh, the players all entered an out-of-court settlement with Duke. Yeah, with Duke as well. It was like $60 million or something. Oh, I didn't know that much. It was crazy. It might not be 60 but it was a lot of money. It was nuts. Um, and, you know, here's a here's – and I kept thinking this through the entire story, Noah. What would have happened if this was in 2018? No, that's a very good question to ask. And I think really I don't think there would have been much different other than maybe – Things would have been sped up from a for like a time frame of Duke's handling of this. Duke, as was shown in the documentary, was kind of made out to being asleep at the wheel. Right. It took him a while. There were a lot of protests, a lot of faculty members. I mean, they slept it. They tried to sweep it under the carpet as fast as they possibly yeah. could, and it just wasn't going to happen. Which, in a way, is good. It, if this actually did take place, this rape that was accused, you want outrage. You want people to be. Asking the powers that be, why are you standing by these people? But the problem is that uh, the media had kind of they. There's a disconnect for me of Mike Nefong and the way he used the media, and it was why wasn't the media asking these questions? Like it seemed pretty clear cut from when the lawyer uh, did the time frame of the three guys and the allegations that there was no possible way that the rape could have occurred based on the timeline. I thought, like, I saw that, and I go, case closed. Right. Do you remember this? Yeah, I agree with that as well. Like, honestly, I think Nifong the entire time was just trying to cover his tracks and just kind of keep the momentum going. Like, I mean, even so, when Crystal Magnum, when there was no DNA, when there was no DNA within, like, their first attempt, Mike Nifong took it to a private investigator and said, all right, find me mm-hmm. some sort of evidence, blah, blah, blah. And he couldn't even find that. Right. And they basically sat Crystal Magnum in a seat and said, okay, we're going to show you every single picture of the Duke lacrosse guy, Duke lacrosse team. I need you to pick three of them so we can press charges on these guys. Yeah. And in her mild defense, like she was uh, – eventually she became a prop as well. Yeah. And this was addressed in the documentary. Uh, once the media got involved and they wanted a conviction, people wanted these kids convicted. They basically, they you know, they said it's illegal with the uh, North Carolina law. The uh, tactics that Mike, or sorry, Mark Gottlieb used, a detective in this case, where you can't just show only people that would have been present at the party. You have right. to show people that wasn't weren't there or couldn't have been there. That way, if she picks one of those people out, you can tell she's lying. They didn't give her that option. So then she gets made out to be this liar uh, when they bring up uh, that she – because in the statement that I want to say it was Dave Evans, the captain, gave, because that was his house, if I remember yeah. correctly. Mm-hmm. And right off the bat, they shows a statement he gives where he said uh, she, Crystal Magnum, showed up uh, under the influence of alcohol and marijuana. And one thing I didn't get either is why when they uh, talked to Tara Levicki, the uh, sexual assault nurse examiner. Yeah. If she sensed that, or she should have been able to figure that out, why was her opinion so – Right. why wasn't that also brought up as well? Yeah. I, I think that they were trying to prove a point. The justice system was trying to prove a point, I think, that, I mean, these Duke lacrosse kids and just Duke in general seemed so as so powerful. I don't, I don't think it was a justice system because the only people in that justice system necessarily – were Mike Nifong and maybe the detective Mark Ali, but I remember one of the things I said uh, in that court scene where with the DNA evidence was the judge. He was just, uh, I believe it was 
whoever it was was just staring daggers into Nifong the whole time. Uh, once it was proven that he. So you're saying the justice system was like the was the crap was. Was so I'm saying you know I misspoke I'm sorry it was you know it was the police and the district attorney that showed their corruption and at the end it was kind of the justice system kind of stepped on him and said you know correct this doesn't fly correct yeah I agree with that I agree with that 110 percent and I mean it's just so crazy to think that you know this happened or this happened because just of how perfect everything was I think. Mm And um, I think the other thing that really, like, I started thinking about was this whole fake news movement that we've seen in recent years Uh and where, you know, people are just going to try to push an agenda or, you know, make something out of something that there isn't, you know, that they have no right, but they're going to try to make it part of their personal agenda. And I think they made these kids out to be these rapists and sexual assaulters in order to push something, in order to, you know do all these things of promoting, you know, uh, non-sexual assault on college campuses as well and stuff like that. I don't even know if it was, I actually think it was more to do with the whole Duke and the whole privileged white kids narrative that they're trying to push. And that's what they were rebelling against. They wanted to see these privileged kids proving that they can get knocked down a peg, which. So do uh, you think it's more of a class? I think it's more of a class and a race thing than it is a. Uh, yeah, so it's um yeah, it was really interesting that um we I just really thought that was really interesting that we really saw the whole um race and I I kind of thought it was more of um a, a race thing. It could be. I think it being white and black, I think completely changes cuz if she's a poor white girl from oh, I, think people, I think it was more of a class thing. Really? Race definitely, but I think I, I I think you're you're onto something too because of what Duke is and what Durham is. I think they're two yeah. completely different things when it comes to social economics, and I do think that plays a little bit. But I also think Durham, North Carolina, and Duke are you know I, Durham's much more diverse. I really think so. I think that's an interesting discussion on whether we should choose the opinion of you know of whether it was a race thing or was it, you know, more of a socioeconomic, you know, wealth class thing. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was really interesting. Then again, you know, I th- I really enjoyed the documentary. I thought it was a lot of fun. Um, and I think that when it's all said and done, I think we're going to have that up probably towards the high. Yeah, I definitely enjoyed it. It was very entertaining, very educational. Uh, one of the questions I wanted to bring up to you. Yeah was when one of the moms of the uh, players on the lacrosse team uh, brought up the idea of this had happened to the basketball team. What would have happened? Yeah. I found that to be a little unfair. Uh, the basketball team, one, didn't find themselves in this mess. Um, say what you will, as we covered earlier, say what you will about the allegations. It's still wasn't a moral party to have. wasn't a, wasn't the best idea, sort of a kind of drunk idea has gone wrong thing. And uh, I don't think it's very fair to bring in the basketball team when they haven't really done anything like this and try to cast a uh, cast it as a because this is lacrosse and a more minor sport. This was able to happen. Do you agree with that or disagree? I know you hate Duke basketball. I'm trying to be I fair. think Duke is what Duke's a basketball school. Duke is a basketball school. They're going to protect. Duke basketball more than any other. They, I mean, Coach K is might be the most powerful man in North Carolina. 
when it's all said and done. I I think they would have jumped to – I don't think they would have been easily convicted. I don't think this would have gone on. I think they would have put their foot down. Duke basketball is religion, dude. Do you think there would be more people in the media trying to find uh, excuses and ways that these guys are innocent if it was Duke basketball? Yeah, no doubt. Try to find excuses. And you also have to think, Noah, what we just talked about, the socioeconomic thing. These, it's, it's, it's not only race, it's class, it's class, it's everything, you know, is different. If it was the basketball team, some of those kids, you know, come from very poor backgrounds. Some of those kids are African-Americans. But with it being two polar opposites of one another, when it comes to Crystal Magnum and the Duke lacrosse team, that's just going to create, you know, friction. And I think if we had more of a, if things more became intertwined with one another and there was not that big race card or not that big socioeconomic card, I think it would have been different. And I think you would have seen that if it was the Duke men's basketball team. Okay. Uh, I do have one more of a, one thing I think we should look at here, some of the quirkier parts of these uh, 30 for 30s, because some of these do deal with, very heavy topics, but there's always, always some certain things in there that kind of make you laugh. And yeah. to me, there's a couple of shots of Jay Billis. With oh, man, hair. with hair? No, I was just about – I was going to finish up with that. Funniest stuff ever, dude. You know, you see him sit next to Dan Schulman, you know, in Cameron Indoor Stadium. You just want to rip his head off because he's bald. He's a duke. But, man, Jay Billis with a head of hair? Are you kidding me? Wow. That was pretty crazy. I even wrote that down in my notes, too. I have in my notes as well. Yeah, I, th- I thought it was funny. You know, and if I could have bet my entire life savings on someone who would speak out against, you know, the upper management of Duke, it would definitely would have been Jay Billis. That man doesn't like anybody at the top. From whether it be the NCAA or Duke, it's crazy. So funny. So funny that they got to throw the Billistrator in there, baby. Well, I think he brings an interesting perspective. Though. I think he does, too. But, I mean – was he a good? Was he good? Yes, he was good. But it was just funny seeing James. Right. Anything else you got? No, I'm good. All right. Go. All right. Our second thirty for thirty that we took on was Youngstown Boys. Uh, it's a story of Maurice Claret and a little bit of Jim Trussell, and is directed by Jeff and Mike Zimbalist. Uh, the story. Really is more of a narrative about Maurice Claret. Kind of follows him through his early childhood, up through his rise at Ohio State, and then uh, his ultimately his one-year suspension from the Buckeyes that leads to him leaving the school and actually never really playing football ever again. Uh, would, and then it also kind of on his parallel narrative covers Jim Trussell, also a Youngstown guy. Uh, doesn't kind of covers his rise as the coach of Youngstown State. Or whatever it's called, and uh, Youngstown State. Okay, sorry. And then his uh, trip to Ohio State. I know the name of that college. And his success there, and then a little bit of his allegations uh, that led to his downfall at OSU. Uh, and then also sh- uh, shows a little bit of the city of Youngstown, the type of town that is. It's a smaller, t- industrious town in Ohio that back in the uh, you know, mid nineties or sorry, mid 1900s was, you know, cranking out. It was a steel town, great economy. Then the major steel plant in town shuts down, economy goes to shit. And 
is basically just kind of a poor town in Ohio with not much of an identity. I think, you know, it's weird because this is also, you know, going along with Fantastic Lies is a story that kind of happened at the beginning of our lifetime. Yeah. So like, actually a little bit earlier. Yeah. So, I mean, Maurice Claret, I mean, the amount of times we hear that he won Ohio State National Championship um, in our house is often. Um, but it was weird because, you know, all these things happened that – it's awesome in 30 for 30s because we so much get to see um, these great athletes who rise and then fall. And now they're trying to work their way back up. And Maurice Claret fits that definition 110%. Mm -hmm. um, I think the first thing that really jumped off to me was where he's from. Um, Youngstown, Ohio, as it was portrayed in the documentary, is, you know, is a fight for your life kind of place. I mean, um, you know, they. I think um, Maurice Claret's mom, one of the first things she talks about is how um, one night they decided or a group of people decided to shoot up the front of their house, almost killing both of them and shot up the back, um, you know, right then and there. And that's a story of telling you, I mean, just how dangerous that place is. And, and where tells you how Maurice grew up. Right. So and I think that plays a really big part in, you know him kind of coming into this person that he ultimately becomes. Um, I thought another really interesting thing, Noah, that I think you're going to, you appreciate it as well was this idea of the, they kind of talked about how Maurice Claret was bigger than LeBron James at the time. And um, they go in by talking about how, you know, football's number one in Ohio, which it definitely is. And Maurice Claret was like a bigger name than LeBron. And I think it's just so weird because they're very similar in a lot of ways. Freak physical specimen um, came up in a rough neighborhood okay. with a mother, with a maternity, you know, maternal, you know, family who's run by their mother. And um, I really thought that was really interesting. Griff gifted with so much great talent and both kind of went off on their different routes. And LeBron is where he's hit today. And Maurice Claret kind of rose and fall and, you know, now trying to work his way up. Yeah. Uh, I would agree with that as well. And also it's in many ways a story of how Maurice Claret just, kind of got unlucky with football's rule, the NFL's rules that you have to be out of college or high school for three years. You know, like uh, part of the controversy around Maurice Claret at Ohio State started his freshman year when he said that, uh, you know, he wished he could be a one and done. He mentioned that in his interview with uh, Gene Wojnowski and how LeBron James already had a 12-year, $115 million contract from Nike or whatever it was. And, you know, Maurice Claret can't make any money because he's playing amateur athletics, and he won't have that for three years. Yeah. Um, clearly, Maurice Claret showed that he had the physical traits uh, to probably at least compete in the NFL at some level when he was a freshman. I mean, he was running over Big Ten defenses. He was, you know, led his team to a national championship. You're telling me that guy can't get on a roster in the NFL after one year? You know, I think that's so interesting because – I feel like going back and looking at players like <clears throat> Jameis Winston, mm -hmm. and I look at like big time players who won the Heisman early in their careers and going, could those guys have played, you know, in the NFL? And, you know, for the majority of them, I kind of go, I mean, we got Johnny Manziel, right? Lamar Jackson, you know, that isn't sold, you know, we aren't sold on him yet. But they're competing. They're not out there looking like, well, in Lamar Jackson's case, and Seamus Winston's case, as a rookie, he did well. Mariota, 
he did well as a rookie. Um, a lot of it just kind of happened with injuries and things that hampered their development. And a lot of them yeah, but then issues. again, that brings up the they, yeah. That's exactly why they okay, should be out there. They Jameis, uh, Jameis Winston was in college for three years. He didn't get any more mature. If anything, maybe being in a more pro environment where he's not going to be you know the top dog like he was at FSU, uh, that would actually humble him a little more. That would make him more mature because he's going to have to be a professional. He's going to have thirty-two year olds, thirty-three year olds, you know, multiple year vets watching after him instead of having to look to the coach who needs him to keep his job uh, as his main leader. I don't know. I think this brought up a really interesting idea. And when they talk about like the whole, his lawyer's approach to talking to the judge um, about, you know, Maurice and, you know, pointing, you don't think this guy, you know, who can bench so much, blah, blah, blah. And Ron is quick can play in the NFL. I think, I like I like the NFL rule. I think football's a different sport than basketball. I think, you know, you could put Zion Williamson out there um, and, you know, he could compete, you know, athletically. Mm-hmm. But I think the NFL is just a different animal and a different breed in all its, itself. I think the game's played so much faster than it is in college. The athletes are so much bigger, stronger, and, you know, it's a lot more physical contact. Um, do I think Maurice Claret could have played in the NFL for – I think he could have played coming out of college, but I don't think he would have had the longevity of a career if he had one. I think his career would have been shortened because of all the hits. I mean, even they talked about in the documentary how beaten up he was even after one year of college. And he knew that, too. He knew he only had so many hits in him. Right. And um, I also thought the really interesting thing was the personal battle between um, the the star running back, Maurice Claret, and the inner demons, Maurice Claret. That was you know, so caught up in the drugs and the women and the alcohol that that kind of just completely ruined everything. And it completely, and sadly, up. it didn't really, those didn't really start for him until after he was unable to play football for two years. His first year, he seemed like he had a good head on his shoulders. He was making the right decisions. He wasn't going out partying, doing, you know, these things that led to his ultimate downfall and his arrest. Uh, but when he, they took football away from him, that he had to turn to that, and uh, that's the sad part. That's kind of the whole tragedy of this whole situation that occurred at Ohio State, where it was really just this seemingly, I don't know what the right word is, but this athletic director that had a vendetta against Maurice. Andy Geiger. He had the dare, Andy Geiger, because he had a, like the uh, the nerve to challenge him on one thing. And he just kind of went and ruined Maurice's whole career at Ohio State and really hampered his life for a while. Yeah, I, I think that – as well as I think he needed Jim Trestle, I think, at that time in his life. And Jim Trestle was so distant. And so we also talk – it's also – I mean, it is Youngstown boys. And those two will always be intertwined because of, you know, the 2002 National Championship Mm -hmm. and where they're from. But throughout the entire documentary, it always is seemingly talking about how Maurice lacked a father figure. And if they had a father figure in his life – he wouldn't have been the person that he was. And Jim Trestle could have served as that father figure in his life, but then he decided to take the success and all the success he had at Ohio State and kind of, you know, separate himself from Maurice Claret. Yeah, it seems like when they show Trestle in the documentary now, he's uh, kind of – he doesn't say directly, but he has a lot of regrets about how he handled uh, the Maurice Claret situation 
or at least that he didn't do more um, for Maurice Claret. Because there was kind of a time where he did just kind of distance himself from Maurice Claret. He said, you know, can't, you know, need to keep my job. Right. Can't challenge the AD. Can't challenge Andy Geiger. So, I, but I do believe now, Trussell, maybe it's because he doesn't have a team to coach. He doesn't have players uh, presently to coach that he can kind of uh, go back to his former players. Because it seems like now Maurice and Jim Trussell are very tight. They do a lot of work in the uh, greater Ohio communities together. Uh, cities like Youngstown and other kind of smaller yeah. uh, poor Ohio towns. Um, but it does seem like Trussell comes out of this documentary with a lot of – like he still has a lot of regrets about what happened to right. Maurice. Yeah. And I, it does seem like he – even though he doesn't admit it, he does seem to bear some of that weight. And I thought the interesting thing was when all this stuff about the tattoo scandal was happening at Ohio State, he Which backed, they only spent like two minutes on right. by the way. He he backed the guys in that scandal. He backed Terrell Pryor and Devere Prozy and all those guys. And I think he did that just to make up for the idea that he didn't back Maurice Claret back in the day. And yeah. he kind of just threw him to the wayside and said, All right, I'm gonna go with me. Only me, you know, thanks for coming along for the ride. Thanks for wanting to be a national championship. And in the end, you know, whatever, you go do your thing, you know. But I think we saw that that he did have that regret for not sticking with Maurice Claret because of his actions when it came to the tattoo scandal. I would agree with that. Uh, there's also some interesting parallels between Jim Trussell and Urban Meyer and their tenures at Ohio State. Uh, they both, uh, not where they came from, but their first year, they win national titles. Uh, after that, they kind of have they have good success by any measure of a college football program. But for Ohio State, where it's title or bust, they don't get back to the promised land ever. They, neither got uh, another national title. Urban still doesn't have another national title. And then both about seven years into their career, face what could be a devastating scandal. Trussell lost his job over it. And then Urban... Barely hung on to his job after the uh, Zach Smith allegations and that whole cover-up. So I actually kind of, watching it in 2018, I just kind of found it very interesting to see those parallels between Jim Trussell uh, and Urban Meyer. Yeah, the, the biggest difference that I think between Trussell and Urban Meyer is the fact that um, Trussell doesn't have a cyst uh, on his brain. Um, but, I mean, that's neither here nor there. I think it makes an interesting point about how what Youngstown I feel like I feel like the real hero of this entire thing was um Maurice Claret's mom yeah she's definitely uh, the main character and you see where Maurice does get his intelligence and uh his hunger for knowledge that he eventually got while in prison like he it was one of his lawyers that said his whole life he was uh exercising working out his body but uh, never did he think to exercise his mind. Yeah. Uh, that's, I think, really something you see. Like, he always had that intelligence, always had that smarts, but never really – he was never really given the time to uh, use those abilities because right. he was always football, 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 workout, prepared for football. Yeah, and I think his his mom, I think and, – and I think these kind of bridge the gap because he had such a strong – even though he didn't have a father, he had a mother that loved him, stayed by him no matter what, showed, you know, tremendous resilience and, you know, overcoming all these obstacles with him. And I think that helped as well as what you mentioned earlier, the idea that he began to completely change who he was. 
he was no longer Maurice Claret, you know, the football player. He was Maurice Claret, the the person, the, you know, he wasn't the guy from Youngstown who got, you know, arrested with all the guns mm-hmm. and, you know, got on all this trouble and partied and had all these women and blah, blah, blah. He was a completely different person. And I think that is another great thing about the 30 for 30 documentary series is because we see changes in people that, you know, in every other sport, you know, people aren't put on the microscope that athletes are. And I think to see these changes in athletes um, like a Maurice Claret is huge. And I think that's inspiring to people who, you know, have had a bad go of it, didn't probably get paced in the right spot and, you know, got involved with the wrong kind of people. But there is hope. There's, you know, chance to, you know, ultimately get better, you know, climb out of a hole. And I think the Youngstown boys, especially Maurice Claret, really focused on that. I would agree with that. I think that's kind of a good recap of all the content. Uh, a couple of things I want to touch on are more of what I thought about the film itself. Okay. Kind of the way it was done by the directors. Yeah. Uh, one thing I noticed was the way they kind of used, like when they were t- doing a scene at the end where, uh, or actually they did it twice near the end. Once when they were going over Maurice in prison and they had different members from Maurice's life talking about what he had to learn in prison. And I noticed what they did is they would have one man or woman talking, uh, giving Maurice's advice while he was in prison, and then they will just show Maurice's face, and they would pan, like, closer and closer. Yeah. Did you notice that? I noticed that as well. Yeah, they did that when uh, for the same thing when talking about the death of his father. Yeah. And his, uh, the fact that he didn't really have a relationship with his father. I thought that was uh, well done. Overall, I just thought the documentary could have been better. Mm-hmm. They seem to kind of they really seem to focus in on the narrative. One of the things I really love about Thirty for Thirties are they're really good at going in depth, and you feel like an expert in some ways after watching uh, watching these about whatever the topic is covering. Yeah. I just felt like this was sort of like a very much a rudimentary sem- uh, summary of what took place, yeah. and it tried to almost cover too much ground. Uh, and I really just did feel like I I learned about Maurice Claret, which was something I didn't know. But I feel like if I were an Ohio State fan at that time and followed him really closely and kind of knew the story well, I would come out of that documentary not knowing anything different, not learning anything. Um, I think the one thing that they fell short of is it was more like Youngstown Boy and not Youngstown Boys. Yeah. I mean, there were times where Jim Trestle didn't show up for 30 minutes. Yeah. Like, I feel like if they're going to name this Youngstown Boys, it's got to be the, you know, there's got to be two parallels between the two guys from Youngstown. Yeah. I did like how almost every single time they had, like, you know, they were talking to somebody, like, the, the camera would go in on their face, you know, being that more intimate. I thought, you know, that was really well done. Um, I think ultimately in the end, I really was drawn to it mostly because of um, how just, you know, the story. With Maurice Claret, if they would have done a thing on Maurice Claret and gone, you know, more and more into detail and like, you know, do stuff like that, I would, I, I would have followed it. I agree. Jim Trestle, I think, was just kind of like there, like he was just kind of yeah. like, okay, like Jim Trestle and Maurice Claret from the same town, you know, he coached them, blah blah blah, and at the end he shows up. Yeah, it's kind of like when they went to the editing process, they had a whole narrative on Jim Trestle, a whole narrative on Maurice Claret, and they just mainly focused on the narrative from. Maurice Claret, and every now and then they interspersed Jim Trussell's narrative. It didn't really seem to fit into the storyline. Like, I don't get the point of only talking about Jim Trussell's allegations. 
well, not his allegations, but his whole scandal with the tattoos for like three minutes. Like, do a little bit more, spend more time on that. That was interesting. Right. Um, you know, in some ways, they, they go heavy into Maurice's problem, which is good. You learn more about him. Uh, it makes more sense uh, how he ended up in that situation. But then it's kind of like they spent three minutes on Jim Trussell's problems. Leave him, go back to Maurice being in prison. And then, okay, now also we're bringing Jim and Maurice back together, you know, community building. Right. Like, it just jumped around too much for me. Uh, even though it was my pick, it was probably going to be at the bottom of uh, the three documentaries that we've watched so far. Yeah. I, I mean, I I gave it, I think, like a 7.2, which was a little generous, I think. But, I again, I'm a story guy. I like hearing personal struggle and, you know, personal, you know, achievement come out of that struggle. So I think it kind of played to my tune. Um you know, more than that was, but ultimately I think it was a good one to watch and, you know, kind of, you know, especially with, you know, the college football playoff in Ohio state and urban and stuff like that. And, you know, has Ohio state always had like an athletic director problem? I feel like they've always had like some sort of scandal going on or some, you know, whether it be tattoos, Maurice Claret, I mean, you know, urban, you know, it's just crazy. It's just, that's Maurice just Claret seemed like a self-created scandal, though. I think I think the it's, AD coming at him with yeah. like his hair was on fire. Yeah, like I didn't that and many with chances. Like, in a sense, you have a guy that led you to the national championship would be a Heisman candidate for the next couple of years. And he's a 19-year-old kid. And he's a 19-year-old kid, and you're just basically destroying his life, and you're telling yeah. him to play football. Yeah. So, um, so I I really. Agreed with that, and um, I I really think that was uh, you know that was Youngstown boys. I thought it was good. All right, so the last um, documentary we watched of the three was um, the Four Falls of Buffalo, and Noah and I had both never seen this documentary before, and we watched it together, and we watched it together. So it was um, it was pretty special. Almost brought a tear to my eye. No. Um, and I was, it's a, it's a story that you know kind of goes unheard of. I feel like, yeah. Like I, I, if I didn't, if there wasn't a documentary about it, I kind of like would play it off. Like okay, well, like, it was before our time about a franchise that hasn't done anything uh, since they've lost four Super Bowls. Right. So it's not like they're this real. They're not the Dallas Cowboys or the Green Bay Packers. They don't have this illustrious history. They're the Buffalo Bills. Uh, they're best known for losing for Super Bowls. Yeah. Uh, and so this all happened before we were born. Yeah. So, no, maybe I'm wrong. But so they they lost to the 1990 Super Bowl to the Giants, right? Mm-hmm. I think they lost the 1991 to the Redskins. I believe so. They lost the 1992 to the and 1993 and 1993 to the Cowboys. So they lost to the NFC East, basically. Yeah. Um, and I really, it's interesting because you, everybody knows about Jim Kelly. Everybody's like, oh, Jim Kelly. And they kind of played into that too, which yeah. I don't know. I, but, um, they talked about Thurman Thomas and, you know, all the, you know, Bill Polian was in it. Um, Scott Underwood was the kicker, right? Wasn't that his name? No, no, Scott Norwood. Scott Norwood. Sorry. Billy Norwood, Scott Norwood, you know, Carrie Underwood. It's all, you know, all jumbled up in there. But, um, so 
the Bills were this kind of team that have been embraced by a city. They were Buffalo. They still are Buffalo. Bills Mafia. I was telling Noah, I was I was kind of mad we didn't see anybody jump into a table. But we didn't get to see the guys just sitting in a hot tub like it. Negative 20 degree weather. So. Yeah, just slamming beers like there's no tomorrow. I mean, that's Bill's Mafia. Um, but and, I, and those fans still believe they're going to win after fours while they're going to their fork soup. So that was where I was going to start, Noah, is are the Buffalo Bills the best fans in sports? I have no idea. It's such a, such a subjective question. Really? Yeah. Anyone can say they're the best fans. So, so when you throw a parade – for a kicker who missed the game-winning field goal in the Super Bowl, as time expired, when you're when you're seven-point favorites and you throw a parade for a kicker, you're uh, not great fans. Uh, you sound like losers that are content with losing, if you ask me. Really? Yeah. Well, I mean, you're Cleveland Browns throwing 0-16 parades. Yeah, that so. was a shot at the uh, front office, and it was saying like we're. That was a, a way to embarrass the front office, the 16 parade. But that's neither here nor there. Um, they do have good fans, I'm not going to lie. Uh, but best fans, who cares? You know, who knows? And a lot of places could say that. I mean, not the Miami Heat, but the Buffalo Bills are up there. Um, one thing I liked about the documentary was how it starts the year before and how they were the bickering bills. And much like – now, this is a little bit more of a lighter question compared to the one you asked earlier, but like in Fantastic Lies, how would the bickering bills be handled in social media age in 2018 with 24-hour sports? I mean – Like, you have your – like, could you imagine uh, Zeke Elliott going around saying Dak Prescott ain't shit? Yeah, but this is exactly Dak what we had with the Patriots a couple years ago. When? When Tom Kraft and Bill Belichick and Tom Brady all were supposedly feuding with but one another – out in the open, that they weren't doing that in press conferences. That was just like detailed reporting. It like Thurman Thomas and Jim Kelly went on their respective TV platforms and were talking about how you know Jim Kelly somehow his offensive line sucks. Thurman Thomas is saying Jim Kelly needs to shut up. Like that wasn't rumors. We've had situations where uh, we you know players, star players in organizations didn't like each other, and there were rumors, but. I, rarely was it. So when Odell Odell Beckham Jr. criticizes Pat Shermer in the media for his play calling, I think that would be honestly, honestly, you know, I need a little bickering Bengals. Come on, that would be entertaining. I I need something like this. I think, and I think now, I mean, I wouldn't mind. Oh, I'm not against it at all. I, I wouldn't mind it all. I love the scene where it showed Jim Kelly and Thurman Thomas giving their impromptu press conference, talking about how, you know, oh, we like each other, blah, blah, blah. Like You know what that kind of reminded me of? When, um, when Larry Bird and Isaiah Thomas and the Bad Boys kind of came out and they, like, kind of, like, kind of, they said it, but they didn't really, like, express it. Do you remember that? No. When um when Isaiah but Thomas, they didn't play on the same team. Yeah, but I it's just two icons who don't really. It's just like people. It was just like let me. How do I describe this? I actually had another analogy. Okay, what was your analogy? Uh, showing my Cleveland fandom. It was when Dion Waiters and Kyrie Irving uh, the year before LeBron came back to town. They had to hold this press like this impromptu press conference where they uh, sat together and convinced people not convinced but. Acted like they were good friends. Like, Kyrie, no, Dion's my brother. I love him. He's my teammate. 
Deion said something similar about Kyrie. The whole time, you can tell they're just like, I hate this dude. Like, yeah, but I don't think Thurman Thomas and Jim Kelly hated each other. I, they didn't seem to like each other at the time. I don't think they um, hated each other. I, think I mean, Jim, what a disrespectful move. Where he was wearing a sweatshirt, like a crew neck, that had like a middle school on it. Yeah, he's Jim Kelly. He's cool as cool. He's, yeah, I love it. I thought it was hilarious, but shows how much he cared about What did you think about them, you know, having the Four Falls of Buffalo and also Jim Kelly's battle with cancer? I mean, I think it was used to show how uh, resilient Jim Kelly is, how resilient, um, you know, that's the losing for Super Bowls was in hindsight to losing his son and his battles with cancer. And it also showed the support that uh, Buffalo fans gave him and how they rallied around him and oh, showed that uh, showed that the yeah you know, definitely not the best fans Definitely not the best. I'm not saying the worst. Yeah, definitely. I'm just saying you can make a case for a lot. Of so let's say the Browns. No, actually, here's another guy that kind of goes under the radar, and you know he's having an unbelievable season. It's Frank Reich right now. Yeah. And that was kind of cool to see him. You know, I didn't realize uh, that's. It's always kind of fun, like. Because I had no idea if Frank Wright was a quarterback in the NFL. But then you see him, like, isn't that the coach of the Colts? And then you realize he almost had a chance to lead him. Well, he had a chance to lead him to a Super Bowl against Dallas. Couldn't do it. But uh, it is always funny. And it's, you see this in 30 for 30s all the time. Guys that you know now for something completely different right. uh, than what they are, what they were in the 30 for 30 about. Yeah. Um, so – the Bills were known and kind of took the idea of a, you know, a um, high tempo, no huddle, you know, quick, quick tempo, and they just killed teams. Yeah. So what would you say, like, how influential were those teams in Buffalo, do you think? I don't know, because, uh, you know, the NFL, you've seen people do this before, but more in college. Like, it's more of a popular style in college now than it is the NFL. And you saw Chip Kelly come to the NFL, and it worked for two seasons. And then this, you know, he kind of ran something similar to that, like quick plays, uh, no huddle, get to the line, snap it, a lot of motion, and it just kind of faded out. So I don't know how influential they really were in terms of their offense. Maybe it gave teams the idea to try something a little bit more non-traditional. Mm-hmm. Uh, but – I don't. I can't. I mean, again, I'm not a football historian. I can't think of any other teams uh, that saw that and then became successful copying off the Bills. They say the NFL is a copycat lead, uh, lead, but sometimes you try to copycat the best, and you realize you don't have the generational players that that original team had, right. or that generational team built. So, so, what do you think about Scott Norwood? What do you think about his story? Um. He got off easy. He only lost two Super Bowls. See, I mean, I think it was well said when they uh, the guy made the special teams coach at the time made the point that they asked him to make a kick he had never made before. Right. Really, kicking forty-seven yards off grass. Or yeah, which back yeah. then was tough, I guess. It's um, like kicking off dirt in uh, Oakland. Like, yeah, well, that's stupid. Don't get me going on that. Uh, that's stupid. But um, yeah. So I don't think uh, I feel bad that. No one really seemed to make him out as an enemy or a villain. He seemed to be the hardest on himself about it. Right. Like, you did see all the Buffalo fans rally around him. I don't blame him for not making that kick. He'd never done it before. What I don't get is a play before why they ran the ball with, like, 30 seconds left. Because if, you know, and they got, like, 15, 16 yards off that run. Like, what if they, like, get four? Then you're wasting time. 
And then you have to throw a Hail Mary. Like, I, bad play calling in my decision. It's also weird to see how 30 for 30s interact because they lost that Super Bowl to Bill Parcells and Bill Belichick. Yeah, and, and now there's the two Bills. Yeah, it's, it's pretty weird how that kind of just kind of happens over time. Um, so, you know, looking back on that team, four Super Bowls, four Super Bowl losses, is there any way a loser can be a winner? No, because in some ways you th- because they bank on the AFC. Ch- yes, we were AFC championship champions four years in a row. But if that doesn't turn into anything, yeah, what's the point? It's like so what, right? And the weird thing is like uh, you see LeBron and Cleveland go one and three in finals to the Warriors, and it's kind of like well they got that one like you know mission successful. Well, really three times they went to the finals, three times they lost. Yeah, but I also think they were going up against a different, definitely different animal. Well, Dallas was a uh, was pretty much a dynasty at that time. Yeah, but they never went into a you know uh, NBA finals but where they were favored. The larger point like I'm they trying did, to make, like the Bills did in the first two. True. The larger point I'm trying to make uh, is that you think of these teams that have been given the status of best to never win it. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, maybe it's just because I'm not old enough to remember, but I don't feel like you hear that conversation about the Bills because they've had so much success in the AFC, but they didn't win the Super Bowl. It's almost like, well, they had so many shots to win it. Are they really a great team? Right. They went 0-4. Like, people say the Orlando Magic with Shaq and Penny, one of the best teams. What did they start together? They could win one of the best teams, but they weren't. They never won one. Well, they did go to a final, but they lost. Mm-hmm. Um, so did you see where I'm going with this conversation? Like, you don't hear them in that best team to never win a conversation, when in reality they should be, like, the top. Right. The best, best team to never win it. I, it was just so hard to watch a fan base. And, I mean, you being a Browns fan, me being a Bengals fan, we know disappointment, but I can only imagine going to four straight Super Bowls and waking up on Super Bowl Sunday going, my team's going to win the Super Bowl today. In four straight years, you you know probably drink too much at the party. You go home, you fall asleep, and you wet your bed. Wake up and go. I don't know what's worse: the fact that I wet my bed, you know, as a middle-aged man or woman, or the fact that my Bills just lost another Super Bowl. Like that's just comedy. You can't make that stuff up. One thing I kind of find interesting is the idea that the Super Bowl is one game. So you, you, these losses start to pile up mentally. On the team, it's like when things start going wrong. Here we go again. Yeah, like that was a huge point at the last Super Bowl yeah. too. They were just so emotionally drained that they couldn't, you know, stay with so the I wonder how it would be different if they were playing if this was like basketball or baseball, where it's a series, where it's like so you get that first game to kind of settle in. There's no nerves, like because you know you got one game, and it's like God, if we lose this, we're gonna be four time losers. But if this is a seven game series, you get that out of game one. You get those nerves out of game one. And then you go into game two, refreshed, new mindset, ready to go. You don't get that in football. You get one game, uh, and it, it counts for everything. I think I think that's a good point. I also think that, um, I mean, just football is an entirely different animal. It really is than almost every other sport. Like, in all the rest of the big four, you get seven-game series to the crown your champion. But, you know, in football, you only get one. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I can only just imagine losing – and being so close to tasting victory and losing four times in a row in four yeah. years. In four oh. years. 
That must have been devastating. I wouldn't want to get up out of bed for, you know, two weeks thinking about that. You'd hate to be like a Bills fan not living in Buffalo, talking shit the whole week in the office. Right, especially when you're living in, like, Dallas. Oh, oh man. Could you imagine? That would... Oh, that is the order. That would stink. Just walk into the office. Well, you don't show up that Monday. Right, you definitely don't show up that Monday. But then you kind of have to because everyone's like, oh, of course. Scott didn't show up. Bills lost another Super Bowl. Right, yeah. I mean, just the fact that they lost four in a row is crazy. Now, for the actual documentary, I, you know, I kind of felt that we talked about how um, Youngstown Boys was a little shallow and mm-hmm. really didn't really dig, dig deep. I think this was kind of a blur. I, I, I mean, you just hustled through four, you know, seasons. And, you know, I love Jim Kelly. I, you know, I'm a big Jim Kelly fan, really support him. But, like, that was a huge part of the entire thing. And I think you bring it up, you know, you show him, you know, going back to Buffalo, you know, saying I'm cancer-free, blah, blah, blah. But I really feel like there were more stories to be told within those four years. I thought they did a good job uh, covering, yeah, maybe the last year. But I thought they did a really good job covering the first three years. They did a really good job covering the year before with the bickering bills. I didn't leave that documentary necessarily wanting more. In many ways, they're kind of telling the same story four times. So you would expect their retelling of them losing the fourth Super Bowl to be kind of short. Right. Like how many added elements are there? They're they're Yeah, but that was also Frank Reich's run. No, the third one was Frank Reich's run. Yeah, because that's where they had the big playoff game. Or the big comeback in the playoffs against the Oilers that Frank Wright led. Oh, yeah, and then he got hurt in yeah. the first quarter. And, then... and one thing I kind of found interesting about the uh, fourth Super Bowl that we touched on earlier was they talked about how mentally drained they were, but at halftime they were winning that game by right. six. Yeah. If anything, I would think if you're mentally tough, that's where you say, I'm not losing this right. Super Bowl. Yeah. We're ahead. We do everything we can. And then the Cowboys just came out and smacked them. Yeah, like, I don't understand how that happens, really. Like, they, no one in the locker room is going to stand up right. and give, uh, like, one of those movie, sports movie speech where he's like, I'm sick and tired. Like, I don't understand how that doesn't happen. Right, yeah. I mean, just... Because it seems like all the players, it's like, why even play the, play the game? Like, if you're just going to be that way at halftime when you're winning. I just... I think that's just a story that I don't think we'll ever see. I just think that's just incredible. I mean, how many Hall of Famers did that team have? Eight. They had so much talent on that team that they lost in the Super Bowl four straight times. I mean, that's crazy. And I know they were going up against Troy Aikman and the Dallas Cowboys and stuff like that, but they should have won the first Super Bowl. Should have. Second Super Bowl, their coach coach made a – Stupid remark calling out the Washington well, Redskins on that part. Yeah, well, making you know, making a stupid you know thing, yeah. and I think that hurt them. Frustrated, you know, the Redskins came out and beat them. The third Super Bowl wasn't even close. They just mopped the floor. And they were missing their quarterback for most of Right, but I don't know. It was just it was so interesting to see just the psyche, I guess, of the team, and to see them looking back. On four years of absolute disappointment. They didn't? Yeah, they seemed very content with it. 
I, I just don't know how content I would be. I think I think that's a little bit of like the time heals all wounds thing. Like maybe you've, like you've had to like deal with it for so long that you just kind of become yeah. numb to it. But like to see like those guys talk about it, it was just like wow. Like I don't know if I was in that same position, I don't know how I would feel. Yeah, I just it's it's interesting to me. I agree. Do they obviously they showed the player to get a little bit emotional? Like the, I can't remember who the two players were. I think one of them was Thurman Thomas, but the two that are watching it in their basement, watching the highlights of the four games over and over. Um, like, those guys got a little emotional, but even even they just kind of – it's almost like the grind of going to four Super Bowls wore them down to the point where it's just like, I don't even care. Right. I don't want to think about this anymore. Yeah, exactly. Like, like, it's almost like it's routine for them. Like, okay, watch another Super Bowl. That's incredible. Coming from a fan that, you know, has never seen their team, professional football team, do anything in any postseason. Or... You guys went to two Super The Bengals went to two Super Bowls in a row. Lost they? both of them. Lost both of them. Yeah, that hurts. But well, you're not alive for that. It's all right. It's all right, no. It's fine. But, um, yeah, so Four Falls of Buffalo, I think, you know, was one that we needed to watch. It was good. You and I both haven't seen it. I enjoyed it. And um, I really think that, you know, it's probably going to be, you know, we'll see. I think middle of the pack. Probably, probably. probably. Um, I will say one interesting thing, uh, and we were in some ways intentional with how we grouped uh, these documentaries. Like we had, in some series we did like college basketball, college football, and other ones they, uh, the three we decided to watch, just kind of naturally fell into this uh, category. And this one all kind of had some element of tragedy to it. Yeah. Uh, obviously, like the four falls of Buffalo is a little bit different. Where it's more of it's a sports tragedy in the sense that you know they lost end right. of the day. They lost. That's it. Maurice Claret and uh, Fantastic Lives. Those two had more of a serious, you know, yeah. personal tragedy. Yeah, bigger than sports tragedy. Bigger than sports tragedy. So I did find it interesting how we kind of naturally came to these first three. And they all had this element of tragedy to it. Yeah. Uh, are there any other general themes you want to say about the three movies? Um, I think, you know, I honestly don't see that many parallels to those movies other than Great Tragedy. Yeah. I think the Great Tragedy one is, you know, I think it is shared by all three. And honestly, I think they're seen in different ways. I feel like tragedy for the New York Bills, or not the New York Bills, the Buffalo Bills, was more of a, you know, a team as a city. I feel like, you know, the Maurice Claret was one of personal loss and tragedy. And, and, and I think Duke Lacrosse is just a tragedy of the world surrounding, uh, you know, us and how cruel and weird and, you know, how right. hostile that can be. Yeah. So I really think they all take on their own form of tragedy, and um, I think we picked a good three to start off with. Now, and I'm really proud of this. And I'm gonna go ahead and rattle off the next three we'll be watching. That will be our next podcast. Really, not a lot of parallels uh, between these next three, other than they all focus on one um, one day, one period of time, one event, and it's the '85 Bears of Miracles and Men. And June 17th, 1994. Well, I think, um, wait, so we got 85 Bears of Miracles Men, June 17th, 1994. And then do we have, oh, so Survive in Advance is after that. Okay. Yeah. Oh, Survive in Advance. 
Yeah, I think I, – I mean, I'm excited. I've, I've seen bits and pieces of all three, um, so I've never watched all of them all the way through. Yeah, June 17th, 1994 is the only one I've seen all the way through. Yeah, so I'm, I'm excited about that. Um, I, I'm excited. I really think these three were good ways to start off because I think we saw maybe one of, the, one of the top, one of the bottom, one of the middle. How would you rate the first three now? I would go uh, Fantastic Lies. Four Falls of Buffalo, uh, Young Town, Young Sounds Boys. I think I would go Fantastic Lies, Young Sound Ball, Young Town Boys, and then Four Falls of Buffalo, but by a very slim margin. I think there was a clear winner. I think Fantastic Lies might ultimately be my favorite. I don't. I mean, I thought it was good. I don't. But, um, but I'm not paying excited. But but Young Sound Boys and the Four Falls of Buffaloes were good. Nothing. Nothing great. Nothing to write home about. But um, I'm excited, man. This this stuff gets good. Uh, we got some great ones on the docket. So correct. Um, I just want to thank you guys all for listening to our first podcast. It's it's been a struggle. We've had a couple roommates walk in on us, you know. Uh, so we're definitely going to need to drop a uh, you know recording sign. But um, yeah, I really appreciate all you guys you know listening, and uh, we'll get back to you uh, you know December seventh, right? Yep, can't wait. I'm excited. I'm already excited. All right, guys. See ya.